Hi, I'm Mark Akers. I'm the founder and director of Oasis International. And this is my friend uh, Hasib from Afghanistan. I'm Hasib. Uh, my name is Ahmadi. And I'm from Afghanistan, Kabul. And I'm a former uh, U.S. Uh, military interpreter. You know, Hasib is just uh, one representative of a lot of refugees that are coming to St. Louis from all over the world. When they come, they come with nothing. So we try to give them a house full of furniture for free, all their clothes, uh, English classes, citizenship classes. We even do baby showers for every refugee mom. Then we need to we set up the apartment for them, which is like um, kitchen accessories, uh, furniture, TV. Um, they are in need of a lot of stuff. Um, they need Wi-Fi, they need phones. Uh, we need to get them ID, state ID, take them to the DMV. We, we help them with the driver license permits. If they are new, they bring nothing with them. Uh, what they can bring in an airplane with, with them. So nothing, only a few uh, uh, pair of clothes. Uh, and and they are all poor people. They come with zero dollars. They have nothing. Uh, so... Um, I, I just think like, what would we do if the Oasis was not in the city? We have had uh, a lot of our windows broken out and, and cracked. We always want to make this place a welcome place for the front of the building. It's so important to be inviting. It's so important to be a blessing to the community and a blessing to the people that are coming into the building. I always have this in my heart. How can I make this place beautiful and safe? And so one of the things that we, we want to do is build up the, the bottom part of the, the windows and get a better design uh, and a better quality of uh, window. They're all single pane and uh, that's not a good thing in the winter or the summer, believe me. Uh, we need a little more security There are a lot of opportunities uh, that the church can be involved in. We, uh, you just did an awesome barbecue here. We do one every third Saturday of the month. Thank you so much. Uh, God bless you. And, and uh, we just look forward to more interaction. Uh, with your church. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good, good. I tell you what, the early service was rocking, so I'm hoping you can live up to their energy because they were off the charts this morning. Uh, that's Oasis International. Every year around this time, we do a special offering as a church. We used to call it Advent Conspiracy. Then a few years ago, we changed it to Take Back Black Friday, which is really fun to say 10 times fast. It's very hard to do. I've gotten pretty good at it, actually. Uh, but now it, they're changing it again on us. So it's going to be called the Thanksgiving Offering. Now, I want to be clear about this, because after the first service, there were still some people that said, I guess they're not doing Take Back Black Friday anymore. And while that is technically true, it's just a name change. So we're still doing an offering, but instead of that offering kind of paying homage to Black Friday, that offering is going to actually be based around Thanksgiving, which is, is kind of nice. The idea that God has richly blessed us and we have an opportunity out of all that he gives us to then give and support something that's doing some great stuff in the world in Jesus' name. So take back Black Friday is staying here, it's just a name change, the Thanksgiving offering. And what we want to invite you into is a couple of really cool projects of where God is doing work around the world that we get to be a part of and give and help support. Stuff that you may not know about otherwise. Now, we, both of our partners for this year, we've been involved with for a while now. And Oasis, we've, we've partnered with for a few years, and we've had people go there and help out. I've been out there to their facility, and it's a great facility, but it definitely needs some updating. In fact, the city is, is mandating some updating. It's getting, it's getting pretty uh, rough on the storefront there. And so that's what we have an opportunity to help with that you saw in that video. Oasis International helps refugees that come over here with absolutely nothing. And 
and no ability to understand our system. I mean, I remember moving here from Virginia six years ago and how traumatic that was and how different things were and how you had to, and it wasn't really that bad all in. But can you imagine coming from another country where everything works totally differently and trying to find your footing here when you don't really speak the language very well, if at all, you don't have a lot of resources. Oasis helps with that while also connecting these people with followers of Jesus. So you can get involved in a couple of ways. In a few weeks, we're going to open up our Thanksgiving offering, and you'll be able to give to that, which is going to help with their facility. But you can also, of course, serve there when we get involved and do projects there. You could sign up to be a host family, which helps one of these refugee families get connected and integrated here It's a great way to share the love of Jesus with people who are coming over because there is some kind of a legitimate need in their past and they need our help and support. And what better way to show the love of Christ than to do that with them? We have another opportunity that's tied in with this Thanksgiving offering, but I'm just going to leave that hanging there. So you'll have to come back to find out what that is. It's also very exciting, but you're going to want to be ready when it's time to be a part of this offering, something we as a church get to do together. Well, as I'm looking around today, and I was looking around earlier in the lobby. I notice a lot of familiar faces, and it's great to see all of you. But I also notice a lot of unfamiliar faces, a lot of people that I don't even know who you are. So I hope to get to meet you at some point. I'm Adam, by the way. Hi. But I also want you, and this is going to be a real shock to introverts in the room. I want you to just be able to take a minute and get to know each other in here. So what I'm going to ask you to do, don't start yet, is I want to ask you to actually stand to your feet and say hi to someone, preferably that you don't already know. Now, here's the thing. You do not have to shake their hand, okay? You can fist bump, you can elbow, you can air shake, you can wave, whatever you want to do. But I encourage you to just for a couple of minutes here, get up, find somebody that you don't recognize, introduce yourself to them, and tell them what you're excited about for winter. Go. That's enough. That's enough. Take your seats. Mission accomplished. Now you're all just eating into my sermon time, okay? So find your seats. I know I started it, Bill. You're right. Uh, this is this is a super friendly church, and if you're new here, I hope that you, you get that sense and that vibe. And you know what? All you got to do right now is just push pause on that and then pick it up at the end of the service, okay? So don't feel like you got to rush out of here. Just have that kind of conversation here or in the lobby, and let's keep talking with each other. I've already met a ton of new people today. It's super fun, and we're really glad you're here. And if you are new, we hope that you get connected into the body of Christ here and find it to be a great home for you. Uh, I want to thank Bill Jones and John Richardson for preaching the last couple of weeks. 
Uh, Bill Jones is our, our former senior pastor here. He's one of our current missionaries now. And so he preached a couple of weeks ago while uh, myself and a number of people were at Pinecrest Family Retreat. And then last week, John brought us back into the book of Acts. And I got to tell you, I have never been so excited to wrap up a series than when we finished Created the Connect. In fact, I got so into this habit and this routine that as I prepared for today, I found myself thinking, how can I work an illustration about sex somewhere into Acts 17? But I didn't find anything, so you know, you're welcome. Uh, but man, I'm excited to be back in a, in a book of the Bible, just working through it together. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts 17. I know there are a lot of new people here, and uh, since Created to Connect, I kind of did all of those Sundays. I wanted to do something I haven't done in a while, which is share sort of our philosophy around preaching ministry here at First Free, which is a preaching team approach. So we've got a half a dozen people who will get up here and speak. I do about two-thirds of the teaching, and then we have other pastors who will get up and take the other parts of that as well, and sometimes guest speakers come in as well. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but every now and then there are people that will ask and wonder, so I just figure it's a good thing to reiterate. A few of the major reasons are, number one, it allows the church to hear from different voices and different perspectives. And there are people in the church that will come up to me and say, you know, no offense to you, but I really love it when this other guy preaches. And I go, that's great. That's okay. I'm all, I'm all right with that. You're going to have your, your favorites, and that's fine, because we all bring different experiences and personalities and styles to the stage, and so different people are going to connect with that differently, and that is okay. It's also great because it allows other people besides just me to be developed in their preaching ability and to stay sharp in their preaching abilities. It's part of what Paul told Timothy about entrusting these uh, things to faithful people who will teach others also. And so I think there's a biblical principle in there. But then also another thing that it does, it allows me on those weeks that I'm not preaching to focus more of my attention on our staff and staff projects, which I love being a part of. And so that's a wonderful thing as well. And then just having a, a young family, it allows me to have some weeks where I don't have the mental energy wrapped up in the message. When you're preaching that week, and those of us that, that preach on a regular basis, we know the week or two leading up to that, it just consumes your thoughts and your mind. And so my family knows if it's a week I'm preaching or not without having to ask, because it just sort of changes your, your disposition a little bit because you're getting ready for that, that big moment. And uh, so it's really healthy. I, I love the approach we have here. I think it's great. And I'm thankful for guys like Bill and John and many others who will get up and speak here as well. But I'm also ex excited to teach today from Acts chapter 17. So if you've got your Bibles, please go there with me. We're going to walk through these verses together and see what we can learn I want to give you some context because Paul is on his second missionary journey now, and John brought us back with an awesome message last week about his time in Philippi, and now Paul is going to do some more traveling, and we are going to, we are going to pick up where they left off last week in Acts chapter 17. But before we do that, let's just pause and pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work through the teaching of your word today and that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Please push aside the distractions of the week and the things that would keep us from giving our attention fully to you. And I pray that it's not about me today, Lord. It's about you and it's about your Holy Spirit illuminating the scriptures to us so that we can live lives that better honor and glorify you. Help us to do that today, Lord, we pray. And in your name we pray, amen. So Acts chapter 17, if you're not there already, verse one, and we're just gonna read through this and talk about it along the way. Verse one says, Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollyana and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. This was something Paul made sure he did whenever he traveled to a new area. If there was a Jewish synagogue there, he would go to the synagogue. That was one of the places that he started with. It was a place that he knew. As a Jew, this was a place that was comfortable to him. He also knew that this would be a group of people that already had an interest in spiritual things, and not just spiritual things, but already had an interest in the God of the Jewish scriptures, because they were already trying to learn about him and follow him. And so it was a short putt to get from there to the new message about Jesus, who is spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. So he would visit a Sabbath, he would find there in the, or visit a synagogue rather on the Sabbath, and he would find there Jewish people who were trying to be faithful to God in many cases, but he would also find non-Jewish people that were called God-fearing Greeks or God-fearing Gentiles. 
And these were people who weren't Jewish, but they looked at what the Jewish people had. They talked with Jewish people. They heard about their God and they believed in him. And they said, I want to follow your God. I believe he is the true God. I'm going to ditch all the paganism and all the other gods that I've been following. And I'm going to do this with you. They didn't convert to full-blown Judaism, but they did worship the true God of Israel. And so you have people like the Ethiopian eunuch who went to the Jerusalem temple to worship there, even though he wasn't Jewish. And you have Cornelius, the Roman military official, who the Bible describes as a devout God-fearing man, even though he was not Jewish. Sometimes we forget about this other category of believer back then, that it wasn't just like you had the Jews and the non-Jews, and and then all of a sudden the Christians came along, and then it's the Christians and the non-Christians, but there was this interesting category of God-fearing Gentiles and God-fearing Greeks that weren't fully Jewish, but did actually follow the God of the Jews, and they found that truth in the Jewish scriptures. So Paul is in a synagogue encountering these two groups of people, and he's basically going fishing, and he knows that the synagogue is a rich pool to fish in. Because these are people that are already familiar with the scriptures and on some level are seeking to understand God and his teaching better. And so he's there for three weeks reaching these people because he knows this is a place where these people are going to be open to this message, more open to this message. And so the first point I want to give to you today is that Paul went to the place where people needed Jesus. And maybe I should even add on to that. He went to the place where people needed Jesus and were open to him. He went to places that he thought, you know what, this is a place where I'll find people that will be open to this message. And I want you to take a moment and just ask yourself this question. When or where am I with people who need Jesus? When am I with people who need Jesus? Where do I go where there are people who need Jesus? Do I have that in my life? What are those contexts where you're hanging out with people, rubbing shoulders with people who need to know about Jesus? Is it where you work? Is it at the gym? Is it in your school or in your neighborhood with your neighbors? Is it your kids' sports teams or some hobby that you're involved in with other enthusiasts that are there? Now, here's the bigger question. Do those people know about your faith? Do they know about how it impacts your life? Do they know that it's more than just that thing you go to on Sundays to to check the religious box, but it actually has a difference, makes a difference in your life? Do those people in those contexts know that about you? I guarantee you that there are people there that have troubles going on in their life, even if you don't know about them, difficulties, that if they only had Jesus and the Holy Spirit and a community of faith around them, it would make all the difference in how they're able to get through those difficult times. But do they even know that you're a person that's connected to answers, to be able to share with them. Sometimes it's as simple as just being open about what you did last weekend. I was at church. Or it's as simple as explaining what got you through a difficult time in your life. Man, I don't know how I would have made it without my small group or without prayer or without the people that were praying for me. And just being real and honest and open with people about how faith integrates with your everyday life is a great way to enter in those conversations and show people, no, this really makes a difference for me. Chances are that most of us have spaces in our life where we're interacting with people who need to hear about Jesus. And if you don't, my challenge to you is you should find some. It's easier than ever for us to be isolationist now. It's easy for us to just wall ourselves up in our homes and to have the groceries delivered and food delivered and to never have to go outside because there's always something interesting on TV. And we can be so isolationist and self-focused that we don't actually spend time out interacting with people that need Jesus. But that's what Paul did. That's the model that he gave for us is to actually go, go find those places or people need Jesus so you can tell them about him. Now, when Paul gets to talking with them, his interaction with them is really interesting. The way he interacts with them, I think, is um, helpful for us, even though we only have a few words about it. How many of you would say that you are a people person? Raise your hand if you're a people. I love people. People are my people. Anybody? Okay, not as many as I expected. All right, the early service had you beat. What about those of you that would say, I'm a task-oriented person? I like the tasks more than the people. Okay, there's some reluctant hands, but there's, I view this as a binary. You're either task or people. So unless you think there's a third option, there's some people that are like, I'm not raising my hand because I don't trust where he's going with this. And I don't blame you, but really there's nothing to be scared of. If you're a people-oriented person, then 
you, you see people as the priority and you're willing to let the task slide in order to focus on the people because you, you like the people. And if you're a task-oriented person like me, then you're focused on the task and people may not even be on your radar, you know, unless you make an intention to actually notice them because there's a task that needs to get done. How many of you are like that? I just want to get that task done. Stop interrupting me. Stop bothering me. I need to get it done. Completion complex. Anybody want to raise your hand? I see a couple honest people out there. I think what we see in Paul's interaction here in Thessalonica is kind of both because he cares about the people. He's there to reach people for Christ. He's there talking with the people, um, but he's, he's also doing it in such a way that he's focused on his mission. He's not just shooting the breeze. It's not just casual conversation. It's not just hanging out to hang out. He's got a task in mind. He's got a purpose in mind for these people. And so the text says that he reasoned with people using the scriptures. That's our second point. He reasoned with them. The root word for reason is the same word that we get the word dialogue from. In other words, this is not a presentation. This is not a sales pitch. This is not a lecture. This was a dialogue. He interacted with them, and they asked questions, and he asked questions. They talked back and forth about the scriptures. I spent some time this week thinking about what that might have sounded like. Like, what did he actually do there? And I have an idea. This is just an example of what he might have done. He's sitting around in the synagogue among the columns of this cool building after the scripture has been read and, and they've had their, their normal things that they do in there and their prayer time. And then he, he turns to the group that's around him and he says, uh, hey, what do you think of Psalm 110? In Psalm 110, where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand. Maybe they dialogue about that a little bit. And he says, who is the Lord that David is talking about there? Because when, when he says that that the Lord is talking to another Lord. He can't be talking about David because it says my Lord. So there's a Lord that's talking to David's Lord. And actually in the Hebrew, it says Yahweh is talking to my Adonai. So the Yahweh is talking to my Adonai. Who is he talking about there? Because that doesn't make sense with, with what we, the way we've always thought about God. And so he enters into this dialogue with them and explains that David was talking about another person of God. God the Son, and how that God the Son actually came to this earth and became God with us, Emmanuel. And he probably went to, I'm sure he went to Isaiah and showed him all the passages in Isaiah that talk about how the Messiah would have to come and how he would be treated and, and killed and, and all of those things be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And I'm sure that's something of what Paul did with these people to help them understand, hey, I'm reasoning with you from the scriptures to show you this message about Jesus. It was a dialogue. So back and forth, people are asking questions. He's answering them, maybe asking them some questions as well. Luke gives us the summary of what Paul said in Acts 17.3. It says he explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. And so I think it went something like that. Go to Psalms, go to Isaiah, go to other places and show this Messiah that you already believed would come. He's come. It, you just didn't hear about him yet. It happened a ways away from here. And here's how he checked all the boxes and how he fulfilled these prophecies. Now, it makes sense that Paul would focus on the prophecies as he's doing this because he's in a synagogue. These people hear the prophecies every week. They're familiar with all the prophecies. So this was a very easy thing for him to say, I'm going to take this thing that you are already familiar with. I'm going to tie in this new message about Jesus to it. And we actually get a valuable lesson from that too, that Paul contextualized his message to his audience. He contextualized it. And this was really important. He didn't use the same approach with everyone. In Athens, Paul walks through and he sees this statue that says it's to an unknown God. And then he goes to the place where they have all their religious discussions. And he says, I noticed this statue to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. I know who he is. But it's a completely different approach because he contextualized his message to his audience. In the synagogue, they're familiar with the old prophecy, so that's what he used. This is something that missionaries have to figure out before they go into another culture. They have to not just have a message to share, but an interest in the people that they're sharing with so they can learn about them and understand what is going to make this relevant to you. 
How are you going to best understand the message that I have? Because if I just give you the same message that maybe I heard back in my culture, it may not translate the same way. When I was in Thailand one time, I was preaching and I shared the gospel message and I felt pretty good about it. And everyone that was in the auditorium listened attentively and as far as I knew, got the message. But then afterward, someone who understood things a little better came up to me and they lived in Thailand, but they were from the States. And they said, hey, by the way, great message if you were speaking to people in the US. But I have to tell you that here, it's not gonna connect with them like that. It doesn't mean the same thing to them. The words you're using aren't gonna mean the same things to them because as far as they're concerned, as soon as this life is over, if it didn't go well enough, they just get another one and they're just gonna be reincarnated. And so the way you were approaching this it's not even really going to have an impact on them. So I had to go back and study and research and recraft my whole message. Thankfully, I had another shot and another chance to speak. And then I told it a completely different way. And that night, actually, people did trust in Jesus and did understand it. And it connected with them in a completely different way because I understood who I was talking with. We have to take the time to understand the people we're trying to share our faith with. Not just deliver a pitch of the gospel but ask questions and understand, what are your thoughts? What do you think about this? When I say this, what does this mean to you? Or when you ask me a question, what do you mean by that? On Friday night, we had an event here for Fusion, which was super fun. That's our fourth and fifth grade youth group. And they had about 100 people out here doing hay rides and a bonfire and pulled pork and chili and uh, s'mores and uh, laser tag. It was super fun. It was great. And I was there talking with a bunch of the, the parents and uh, one of my friends came over and started talking to me. He said, I just have to apologize for something. And I went, oh no, what did you do? And he said, I was having a Bible study at a restaurant. Okay, so far that sounds fine. And we were talking about spiritual things. And this other guy that I've never seen before heard us and walked over and had all these questions. I'm like, okay, this sounds great. I don't know why you're apologizing. And he said, he kept asking questions and he started asking me about my church. And then he was asking me about my pastor. And he was asking if I can ask my pastor questions. Like, do you have that access where you can ask questions? He said, yeah, sure I can. Um, and then the guy said, can I ask your pastor questions? And then I knew where he was going. <laughs> and he said, so I gave him your email so he can email you and ask you questions. And I said, that's fantastic. That's great. But there was something else that he did. This guy was asking questions, and from what I gather, they were kind of antagonistic questions, maybe a little bit of intimidating questions. But instead of just trying to argue back with his own beliefs and view, what my friend did was ask him questions. Well, what do you mean when you say that? What does that mean to you? What's your view on this? What's your belief on this? He tried to understand this other person before just shooting back with his truth bombs. Truth bombs may be true, but they don't do a lot of good winning over hearts of people if they're just lobbed indiscriminately without caring about the other person. I'm sure you've heard before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so he showed how much he cared by not just lobbing back answers to this guy's questions, but also asking him questions, taking an interest in him as well. And even at times when he wasn't sure how to answer, saying, you know what, you should email my pastor about that. Or he's got this podcast that answers some of these questions. You should watch this podcast and that will give you some of the answers that you're asking about right now. And I thought, boy, that is so cool. And we actually, we need to make sure that we're clear on that as a church, that as you're having conversations of faith with people, you should lean on your church and on your pastors and on other leaders to help you in that. If you find yourself stuck or, or concerned that you may not have the answers. You don't need to have all the answers because you have a community of faith and somewhere in there, there are other people that can help you with those answers. There's nothing wrong with saying, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, but I know some people who might. Can I talk with them and get back to you? Or can we connect you with them or however that works? That's awesome. We're all in this together. We don't need to have this fear of not knowing enough because we're part of a community that can support each other in there. Don't ever let that fear keep you from sharing your faith with someone. That's a, that's a great way to feel comfortable doing that. So Paul went where people needed Jesus. He reasoned with people using the scriptures. He contextualized his message to his audience. And then something else I don't want us to miss from verse three is that Paul made Jesus as savior his main point. Jesus as Savior, as Messiah, that was his main point. 
They reasoned, they dialogued about the prophecies. And I, I can't imagine that it's that much different 2,000 years ago than today. If we dialogue about prophecies, there's going to be some interesting rabbit trails, right? There's some interesting theories about prophecies. People have lots of thoughts about prophecies. So you can go in a lot of different directions. And I'm sure the temptation was there along the way to get stuck in this side area or this nuance or this theory. And yet Luke tells us that at the end of the day, Paul's main point was this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. That's the core of the message. And he didn't want to lose that. He didn't want to miss that or get away from that. There are lots of other aspects of Christianity and theology and belief that we can talk about. But if we're talking with someone that doesn't even have a faith basis, to get distracted by those things can sometimes keep us from the main thing, which is the message that Jesus Christ died for us so that he could take away our sins and give us his righteousness so that we can be made right with God and have eternity with him. That's the core of the message that we're all about. There's a lot of other things you can figure out later along the way. Before we're, before we're allowing someone to trust in Jesus and, and, uh, and ask him to be their savior, we don't sit down and give them a, a test and say, all right, what are your views on biblical inerrancy and what are your views on soteriology and hamartiology and all these other things? No, because that's, that's not what they need right now. They need the gospel message, but it's so easy to get distracted. A couple of years ago, I was at a friend's house and there were, we were having this little circle of conversation. And in this, there was a guy who doesn't really have a faith, another guy who's a Christian but goes to a different church, and me. And the guy who doesn't really have a faith was asking interesting questions about my faith and what I believed and how it was different from other faiths. And, and we were having this great clarifying conversation about like, what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, this other guy, who's also a Christian, anytime the conversation touched on any kind of like theological nuance or theory or, or, or some deeper area, wanted to shoot off in that direction and talk all about the theology and all about the theologians and, all, and lots of nuances that are debatable that, that we, you know, if you've been here very long, would say, oh, that's in the conviction bucket. That's not something we argue about here. But that's not what this guy needed in that moment. And by following those rabbit trails down these other theological holes, we got away from, and it sort of killed, unfortunately, the gospel message in that moment. Now, there are times where it's worth having those conversations. There are times where people are stuck up on a certain aspect of theology, and you need to have that conversation to help them understand it. But I think most of the time, because gospel conversations can be so awkward for us, in the back of our minds, sometimes we're just looking for an escape hatch and we find one and whether it's talking about some aspect of theology or history or nuance of the Bible that doesn't have to do with the gospel or politics or sports or whatever it is, we're like, whew, glad that's over with. Now we can talk about something else. And, and maybe we need to be willing to sit in that awkwardness for a little bit longer and press in and continue talking about Jesus and what he does for us. We have this phrase we use at the church. It's one of our distinctive values. Jesus is the difference. Oh, I appreciate that, Elizabeth. That was good. The only one. In the, don't feel, in the early service, it was just Nick, and he's paid to know it. So <laughs> Jesus is the difference. If you walk outside these doors, you'll see it up on the wall back there. It's one of our distinctive values. Jesus is the difference. If he's the difference in our life, if we really believe that, that he's made such a change in our life that it's radically transforming for us, and we're interacting with other people who need Jesus, who, who have difficulties in this world and troubles in this world, and Jesus is the answer for them, then they should see that Jesus is the difference in our lives. It shouldn't be a hidden thing to them. They should know about it. And when they're going through a difficult time, especially that's our chance to not in a, in a, not in a weird way, but just in a normal, natural way, share, hey, this is what makes a difference in my life. It's Jesus. We have to be willing to share with people. So getting back to our Acts 17, what was the outcome of Paul's sharing and reasoning with people? Verse four says, some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. First thing I want you to notice is that word persuaded. It could also be translated convinced. They were convinced. They were persuaded by what he said. He made a good argument. He said, look, based on what you already believe, here is how this ties in with that. And the message of the gospel relates to this concept that you're very familiar with. And they said, that makes sense. And they were persuaded by it. They were convinced by it because of how he brought it to them and contextualized it for them. And they knew the prophecies. And when he showed the prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus, they said, this makes sense. 
Also notice that it's not just Jews, but it's Greeks as well, God-fearing Greeks that we talked about earlier, men and women. It's interesting that Luke notes that some of these women were prominent women, or a more literal translation would be leading women, which is a phrase that's used in other literature of the time to refer to the wives of the council members of the city. So these Greek cities had councils, councils of men that would lead the city, and their wives were called the leading women, and they had social influence because of their husband's status in the city. And oftentimes we see this to be the case, where women are more open and receptive to the message of the gospel than men are, especially when it comes to wealth and power. And this is kind of true in general, but um, just often I think, I think men are stubborn, and I think we're proud, and it's very hard for us. Did somebody say amen? It's hard. For, I swear I heard an amen out there. I know my wife sits on this side, so I'm not sure. But it's hard for us to admit that we were wrong all along about our worldview and how we viewed things. It's hard for us to, to say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and scrap all of those beliefs that I had and follow Jesus now. That's a humbling thing. And I think, I think some cases women are more open to doing that. But then also when you've got a man who's in a position of power and influence and, and perhaps wealth involved as well, there's this sense of self-sufficiency and we don't even realize how spiritually poor and needy and broken we are because as far as we're concerned, the answer to all of our problems is more money, more power. And that's going to solve it. And so if I'm having problems now, probably what's going to fix it is more money or more power or both. And we don't realize that we have a need for something that's totally outside ourselves that we can't even uh, uh, cause ourselves. And it's a God that we need to step into our life and change our heart. We saw this in uh, China when I was over there, where you'd have uh, wives of Chinese Communist Party members who were Christians, who were believers, but on the DL and praying for their husbands for years and not seeing their husbands trust Christ, but their wives did. It was, really, it was a really interesting thing to see. So I feel like I have some kind of understanding of what's going on here, where you've got these women who are trusting in Jesus, and, and their husbands are in these council influential positions, and I'm sure that they were just praying and hoping that their husband would one day see the truth and trust in Christ. Wealth and power have a tendency to make us not realize our need for God. And I think we can relate to that in our country, I think we can relate to that in our community right here. The, the fact of the matter is, the vast majority of us, no matter where you are relative to your neighbors, are wealthier than 99% of the world, and we have a lot of resources uh, at our fingertips. Virtually all of us have smartphones and cars and things that a lot of other people could only dream of, and so it's easy for us to think that we can just be self-sufficient, that we don't have other needs. And so it's harder for us to admit that we do need a God in our life, that we're broken inside because we keep thinking that all, all I need is if I just had more money, that would solve my problem. If I just had more power, if I just had a better job, if I just had more influence, that would solve this longing that I have inside when really our need is for God. And so right here in West County, I think we can kind of relate to that a little bit. Now, the reason for, um, oh, no, uh, I jumped ahead because we got to hit verse five. I can't skip verse five. Verse five says, some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. So something we need to make sure we don't miss here is that Paul's message was accepted by some and rejected by others. It wasn't like everybody said, okay, sounds good. We like this. This is a great message. Let's go along with it. No, some accepted it, but some absolutely rejected it. And it's normal for us to face rejection when we're sharing our faith. But we do have to remember they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting the message. They're rejecting Christ. It's not really about us. One of the major reasons people don't talk about their faith is the fear of rejection. In fact, if I, if I did a survey of this room and asked, okay, when's the last time you shared your faith with someone? And then asked, what's your biggest reason for not sharing your faith? Anytime surveys like that are done, fear of rejection is one of the major reasons that people will give for why they don't share their faith. But if you never talk about your faith and you never risk the possibility of having some rejection, then you'll also never experience that amazing moment when someone actually does say, I get it. I want to believe in this. I want to follow Jesus. Don't let the fear of rejection keep you from sharing your faith. You know, Jesus was rejected by a lot of people. 
And Paul was rejected by a lot of people. And I'm not sure why we should think that we would experience greater success than them. You are going to have some rejection, but you're also going to find some people who accept you won't know unless you try. And so we actually have to be willing to put ourselves out there and risk that rejection. Now, the reason for the rejection here in Acts 17 is given to us by Luke. He says that they were jealous. Why would they be jealous? Well, they're jealous because these are the Jewish religious leaders that are used to having influence over the people. And they're seeing that these new missionaries are coming in with their teaching that the Jewish religious leaders aren't really familiar with. They certainly haven't previewed this and approved it for sharing in their congregation. And so now they're upset. Now, really, these should have been the first guys to notice, hey, this makes sense. Everything you're saying, yes, we know these scriptures well. And yes, Jesus does, does fit all of these descriptions. This, there's really something to this. But no, that's not, that's not their thinking at all. They're jealous because they care more about their influence than they do about God. They care more about their power and control over these people than they do about making sure these people are actually seeing the new thing that God is doing in the world. They're blinded by their jealousy. And they want to hurt Paul and Silas for it. But they don't want to get their hands dirty. So what do they do? Look back at verse 5 and you'll see. They gather some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. Now I love the way the King James Version puts this. And you won't hear me say that phrase a lot. But the King James Version, very poetic version it's actually not a very literal translation, believe it or not. It's much less literal than a lot of our modern translations. But it's very poetic, and it's got a lot of King's English in it, especially if you go all the way back to the 1611 version. There are many versions over time. But the way the King James Version describes these troublemakers in the marketplace is like this. Lewd fellows of the baser sort. Can't you just see someone in the royal court saying that with their nose up, lewd fellows of the baser sort? It's like you can't have a more royal way to refer to these guys. And basically what it's talking about is your less reputable salespeople in the marketplace. The ones that are willing to do anything for a buck. The ones that are willing to take the oil and cut it with a little water or something or wine and cut it with water so that they can make more of a profit or tell you that this is genuine ivory and comes all the way from the Orient and yet it's not, you know, and they're just faking it. These are the guys that would do anything to make a buck. And so it's very telling that these are the people that the Jewish leaders went to build a coalition they went to these guys who don't really care about the Jewish faith. They don't really care about what's going on in the synagogue. They didn't round up a bunch of Jewish people. They went to the marketplace and got these people to do their dirty work for them. And they went to Jason's house. Acts 17, uh, 6 says that, that Paul and Silas weren't there. It says, not finding them there, they dragged out Jason, some of the other believers instead, and took them before the city council. There's that council that I mentioned earlier that's probably the husbands of some of the wives that were the leading women. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they are here disturbing our city too. That's an interesting accusation, isn't it? What would have been a more truthful accusation? Hey, these guys bring new teaching that we don't like. I mean, that's really their complaint. But, but what do they say? They've caused trouble all over the world, and now they're causing trouble. They're disturbing our city too. Now, of course, if you bring the accusation that they've got new teaching we don't like to a secular government, the secular government says, we don't care. But that's why they changed the accusation. They're, they're troublemakers. They're causing disturbances when, of course, it was really the Jewish leaders who brought in the lewd fellows of the baser sorts to cause the trouble. That's where the trouble came from, but they blamed it all on Paul and Silas. And so Paul and Silas were accused of being a civil disturbance. They were accused of being a civil disturbance. They're disturbing the city, just like they've caused problems in other cities, they said. Which also tells me that they probably had messengers telling them, hey, these guys have done this in other places. And so that's why they were able to say this is happening all over the world. But not only do they claim that Paul and Silas were causing civil unrest, they add this in verse 7. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason. Now, I don't know how much you know about the ancient Roman world, but treason was big stuff. That's a big accusation to make. Why are they guilty of treason? Guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. Now, I see how they got there. But honestly now, guys, that's a bit of a, of a stretch. Jesus and Paul never said, in order to follow Jesus, you've got to rebel against Caesar. 
What did Jesus say in Matthew 25? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. What did Paul say in Romans 12? Submit to your governing authorities. That was the message of Jesus and Paul. There was no conflict there. Jesus didn't say, I want you to rise up and rebel against Caesar. He said, I want you to live godly lives under Caesar. Paul said, I want you to submit to governing authorities, but ultimately submit to Christ. And so if the governing authorities are commanding you to do something that goes against biblical principles, then yeah, the biblical principles win. God's word wins. But for the most part, as long as you're able to live your life in a godly way, and there are all these other laws and taxes and things you have to follow, policies you have to follow that you may not like, but it doesn't mean you rebel against them. And so this charge of treason was ridiculous, and they twist their words as if somehow following Jesus as the king of your heart means being treasonous against Caesar. It was actually very hypocritical of them, because all these Jewish leaders claimed to worship Yahweh, and yet they were also would say that they followed Caesar. And for even the Greeks, they worshiped all sorts of gods and followed all sorts of gods, and yet they wouldn't say that was treason against Caesar. So this was hypocritical of them to say, but the narrative stuck. And they ignored the hypocrisy of it. And here's what happened. Verse 8. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil, turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them that very night. The believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the cycle continues. They go to the places where people need Jesus and they reason with people from the scriptures and they contextualize the message to the people and they keep Jesus the main point and it's accepted by some and rejected by others and they continue to face opposition at different points in their journey. But Paul knew something about this opposition. He knew that it wasn't just people. And this is what I think helped him to keep going. It wasn't just people that were rejecting him. Just like when people reject you, when you're sharing your faith, they're not really rejecting you, they're rejecting the message of Christ. Paul knew that this rejection of people also came from other sources. And so he says in Ephesians chapter six, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. There's an unseen realm that wants to push back everywhere God's kingdom works to expand. There is an unseen realm that is working against his mission in this world. There's an unseen realm that wants to do everything possible to make sure that you are not effective in this fight, to make sure that you are distracted, to make sure that your priorities are divided, to make sure that you care more about entertainment or money or pleasure or all the other things that distract us so that you are not a factor in God's kingdom expanding in the world. There's an enemy that wants to see that happen, an unseen realm that wants to push back against you even being a factor in this fight. And so the question that I would leave you with from that is simply, how effective is the enemy at taking you out of it? How effective has he been at keeping you from sharing your faith, at keeping you from being places with people who need Jesus, at keeping you from contextualizing the message, at keeping you from reasoning with people from the scriptures and being willing to dive in a territory that may feel awkward and strange and uncomfortable. But it's what matters most because Jesus is that difference in our lives. There's an enemy that wants to take you out of it. How many hours a week do you spend on entertainment versus sharpening your knowledge of God's word? How many hours do you spend a week on your personal interests versus spending time with other followers of Jesus growing in your faith together? Or hours spent with people who need Jesus talking with them about faith? The best part of this whole story is in verse 6. I love this. Verse 6 says, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, and now they are here disturbing our city too. Now, that's an accurate translation. That's a very good translation of what is really meant there. But a more literal translation sounds way cooler because what they actually said was, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men have turned the world upside down. I have to imagine Paul and Silas were sitting there listening to this accusation. They looked at each other and went, pretty good, pretty good. That's going to be on the T-shirt. Turn the world upside down. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. That's what we want to do. Now, of course, that assumes that the world was right side up to begin with. Is the world a wonderful place? 
Like just getting better and better all the time? Are people more socially capable and trustworthy and stable and responsible than ever before? Is there less loneliness and anxiety than we've ever had in the past? Less depression, less discouragement? Or are we busier and, and more depressed and more anxious and more discouraged and struggling just as much as ever? It's not that everything in the world is bad. It's not that everything in the culture is bad. God designed this whole place. And so his intention and his blessings do bleed through at times. But generally speaking, I think everybody, Christian or non-Christian, looks at the world and thinks, I'd like it to be turned upside down in some ways. And for those of us who know Jesus and know his words in the Bible, we say that starts in the heart. That starts in the soul. That starts with giving your life to Jesus, letting him transform you from the inside out so then you can make a difference in the world and turn the world upside down by how you live based on that faith. The world has all sorts of ideas about how the world should be turned upside down. None of them are ultimately going to fix anything because people are people. What's gonna make a difference in the world and turn it upside down is when we recognize it starts in here, in our soul that we live for God and as more people make that decision to trust in him and they get transformed from the inside out, become a different person. And that's how the world gets turned upside down. The Thessalonians did this. We actually get this cool update from Paul later on in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. And even beyond Macedonia and Achaia, for wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't, isn't that a neat thing to hear back from the Apostle Paul? Like everywhere we go, we talk to people and we're like, hey, we want to tell you about Jesus. And they're like, no, no, it's okay. The people from Thessalonica told us already. I hesitate to ask this question, but you know where I'm going. What would Paul say to us? What would Paul say if he were to travel around the St. Louis area would he be able to say, you know what? I keep trying to tell people about Jesus, but everybody's already heard it from you guys at First Free. I mean, I don't think we come close to measuring up to this church in Thessalonica. We've got no excuse. We've got the resources. We've got lots of knowledge. We've got all the opportunity in the world to let people know like they did. We have no excuse. If only the word of God and the message of Jesus would echo out. That's the word that he used in, in Thessalonians, would echo out from this place to the surrounding area. What a difference that would make. So my question for you as we close is, what would it look for you to turn your world upside down for Jesus? Let's not talk about the whole big wide world, just your world. What would it take? What would you do differently? How would you prioritize your time differently? How would you use your money differently? How would you use your, your resources and your gifts and your skills differently? How would you spend your time differently? What would your calendar look like? If a priority for you were turning your world upside down for Jesus and not allowing the enemy to keep you out of the fight. Let's all bow our heads for a minute. Close our eyes. Father, I hope I can speak for just about everybody in this room or watch online when I say we are so grateful for the salvation that you have given to us. And you give us hope and you give us healing and not that it solves every problem in our life right away, but we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We have someone who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. We have hope and eternity in heaven for the future. We have this wonderful thing and yet sometimes, God, we keep it to ourselves. I pray that you would convict us now. Help us, God, to be more bold and open about our faith, even though some will reject it. Help us, God, to be willing to share about the difference that you make in our lives, even though there will be opposition at times. It feels like we're in this window in time right now where there's so much freedom to share. It's actually enshrined in the constitution of this country we're a part of, that we have the right to talk about this. And in not every country in the world is that the case. So God, I pray that we wouldn't squander it, but that we would be open about our faith with others, share it with them, that we'd see more people become a part of your kingdom and their lives transformed, and that at least in this corner of the world, it would be turned upside down for you. God, we thank you for everything you did to save us and coming to this earth to give us new life in you. And we wanna praise you now for that. And then we wanna go out of here and share that with other people, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Would you stand up with us and let's worship God together.